0: Achtung! Achtung! Welcome. This is we have ways uh, special, and we are delighted to be joined by um, a very special guest, um, uh, Phillips Payson O'Brien, who um, uh, the author of How the War Was Won. And I think, as uh, as grabbing titles go, um, (laughs) it's not and it's not a question; it's an answer. This book, isn't it? That's the that's the the fantastic thing about it. Um, Welcome to the podcast. Um, Now uh we talk an awful lot on we have ways and on our patreon our, our listeners and our regular members of what we call the independent company are very very interested in battles um your thesis um is that that there's one battle really one gigantic battle um on on sea on sea and in the air and that the land battles are kind of and and my, the is going to blanch when I say this, are kind of incidental. The,
4: that's Yeah, I mean, uh, battles are...
0: Imp- <laughs> I mean, that's how I boiled I mean, no, that down. No, but you boiled it down
4: in, 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 pro- properly. I mean, battles are important for telling a story. The experience of battle is incredibly important in war. It's where lots of people die, lots of people do extraordinary things, brave things, cowardly things. So uh, And so as a story, battles are incredibly important and interesting. What I find... Yeah. Problematic, Or what I found as I did my research is tying, quote unquote, battles to actually victory and defeat. And this process by where Japan and Germany were defeated. It all began, I mean, it's, it's interesting, I'm a very slow writer. It took me many years to write this book because I first <laughs> had the, I mean, it struck me, something surprised me when I was doing my Ph.D., for fun, I was reading the strategic bombing survey, which right away is probably a sign of a very odd personality, but I was reading the strategic... <laughs> it's, it's not
2: short, is it? Let's face it.
4: Yeah, I, but it was, it was fascinating because they had collected all this data on the German economy. And mm. my PhD was actually on British and American naval power before and after the First World War. So I was doing it for a bit more for fun, but I saw a chart that said, this is something I didn't expect. And you guys know the Second World War as well as anyone. If I would say to you, 1943, what percentage of the German economy was building tanks? You know, of, of 100% of German war production, all right, um, so of that 100% of war production, not everything, just war production, what percentage would yeah. you say would go to the building of all panzers and armored fighting vehicles, not just panzers, but you know, the self-propelled guns, all armored fighting vehicles? What percentage in 1943?
2: Well, well, I've read I your books so uh, I now know the answer yes but, uh,
0: exactly exactly <laughs> exactly um uh, similarly but what would you uh, what what would you have spoilers. said spoilers oh oh 30 percent 40 percent that the panzer is the the panzer is the thing that epitomizes the German war effort it's the thing that the that the most ink, uh, a vast amount of ink has been spilt over I um, mean it preoccupies the imagination when discussing it's, it's about seven
4: percent I mean, it's a tiny, and particularly when you compare it to aircraft, which are over 40%, 40%. And when it comes to arming aircraft, it's over 50%. And this just actually sort of blew me away. I have to say, I I saw this and I said, this makes no sense. If, when you look at how the Second World War is portrayed, because 43 is this great era of these decisive land battles, be they Kursk, the end of Stalingrad, El Alamein, whereas the, the air offensive over Germany is sort of pointless, it's not doing much not destroying anything, but I said, boy, if you look at the war in terms of what's actually being made by the Germans, who are seen as this big land power, then you have to look at it very differently, and so I just started, you know, I put it aside while I was writing my PhD and other things, and then I came back to it, and I just started breaking it down as to what the Germans were doing, and then I said, okay, look at the Battle of Curse, big, big battle, big, big land battle. Germans lose, a few hundred armored fighting vehicles in the first two weeks of Kursk. All right. Maybe yep. 300, 400, maybe 500 at most. Well, they build 11,000 that year. And by the way, the ones they lose at Kursk are mostly Mark 3s and Mark v- They're early, they're, 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 they're sort of yeah. not the most advanced ones. So the Germans lose 0.2 of 1% of their armaments production in the year of armored fighting vehicles at Kursk. 0.2 of 1% <laughs> is their loss yep. of armored yep.
2: fighting vehicles. Yeah, but but but, but, Phil, I mean, but Phil, I mean, the start off with, of I mean, the German. we, we talked about this a bit, a bit on the on the pod, but the German way of war is is traditionally, and the Prussian before it became German, is to fight their battles incredibly quickly um, with overwhelming strength at the Schwerpunkt, you know, the kind of main point of force. Um, and everyone, So they don't get caught into a long attritional battle because they're stuck in the middle of Europe because they don't have access to the world's resources. They don't have a, a big merchant fleet. You know, they, they, they can't get to the world's oceans. You know, they're, they're, the Baltic is an absolute mishmash of little channels and islands and is difficult to get in and out of, etc., etc. And so they can't afford a long attritional drawn-out war. And what your book brilliantly does is demonstrate... That once they got to that situation, and I would argue that's about November 1941, that they're not going to win because they just simply don't have the material strength to do so. So I would say it's earlier than Stalingrad and Kursk and all the rest of it. But but that's neither here nor there. The main point is that your book absolutely is 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 just incredible in realigning that importance of air and sea power into the whole conflict and that its not it shouldn't be quite so land-centric. I mean, I, I think that's just fascinating. And really, of course, once that Germany doesn't win outright quickly, then it is about production, it is about reducing mobility and all the rest of it. And the, and the Western allies are incredibly efficient at that, both with so, Germany and
0: with Japan. That tiny percentage of uh, uh, um, AFVs destroyed in, in the Kursk battle... Where were the other AFVs destroyed Well, I mean, then?
4: the thing is, most losses are the kinds of things of every attrition. They lose a few a day. I mean, so maybe you lose a few yeah. more a day during Kursk. And, you know, you, but that's only a two or three week period. Most losses in the Second World War are attritional. Um, you know, losses yeah, yeah. are not the kind of things that you have these, you know, one event where you lose everything and then rebuild. Tanks break down. You know you could have a, you could have a two or three tanks <laughs> particularly break down german tanks yeah. i mean if if you look at we you know the summer i mean I, I don't want to make this too too statistical summer of forty three the Germans lose 1300 armored fighting vehicles on the entire eastern front i e Kursk is you know it bumps it up a little bit but it's not actually much higher than the average daily attritional loss if you look at at what the Germans are doing and to go back to your point James the Germans can't win the war while Britain's in it. I mean that, the decisive moment is, is the Battle of Britain, and which is an unwinnable battle. Yeah. What I think it I is. Totally Ger- agree. German, the Germans cannot win if they cannot drive Britain None. out of the war and they simply cannot yeah. drive Britain out of the war. They do not have the right equipment. The only way they might've done it is if they had spent four or five years from 1940 preparing this, that battle. I mean, they would have had to completely retool what they have, build what they didn't have at the time. And they, you know, they might've been able by 1944, 45, to take Britain on. Even then, I doubt they would have. Um, but it, it's the kind of thing, if that's the German way of war, it's doomed anyway now, the german way of war has yeah, no way of, the,
2: the, of, of succeeding so interesting yeah because because you know by 1939 to 45 Warfare has become a war of air, land and sea. You know, I came across this great quote the other day by Phil Marshal Alexander, and he said, said, you know, modern warfare is a marriage between air, land and sea. The symbiotic relationship between the army, the navy and the air force has to be absolutely tight. And that's what the Western allies are doing. The Soviet Union isn't doing it quite to the same extent. The Germans certainly aren't doing it. The Japanese are trying to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and doing it quite successfully to start off with, but but you know he's right, isn't
4: he? Well, it's also because it, it's also what is engaging the enemy, is engaging the enemy efficiently, killing an enemy soldier in battle. Well, actually, that's the least efficient way to engage an enemy because by that point the enemy has a ne- weapon and could kill you. By far, the most yeah. efficient way is to use air and sea power to engage the enemy before they can put things into battle. You know, by the time they get to the battle, they can be used to get you. It's far more important if you can actually damage things either before they're made, while they're being made, or while they're being deployed. And that's why air and sea power uh, operate on a different level. Land power operates in these battle moments when you come together. Air power or sea power, you going back to you know, Mahan or, or Corbett, can actually affect the process from the minute the raw material is mined from the earth and put on a ship and tried to send to the factory. And so they really determine, you know, by, by the time you get to the battle, air and sea power have already shaped what's going to happen. If you look at something like Kursk or Alamein, they're not actually moments of drama because we know what's going to happen because air and sea power had to what was going to occur in those engagements. There was no right, way. Because, Alame-
2: because Montgomery and Alexander have decided that before the Battle of Alamein, second Battle of Alamein on the 23rd of October forty two launches, that... Their, their, their material strength is such that they cannot lose.
4: They cannot lose. The Germans can't resupply. Yeah, yep. the, the Germans are what they are. The, the British have control of the supply lines. They're going to win the battle.
0: So at what point um, have the Allies decided that, the, the, or when does the penny drop for the Allies that this is the only way they're going to win? Or is this how they're always, is this from, is this just first world war experience that the, the air is the next element on top this of this is a, because after all the, the strategic bombing campaigns that comes out of the idea of the blockade doesn't i don't want it? yes um, absolutely uh, but I,
4: do, I don't want to go to my next book is about the making how the first world war cha- affects second world war grand strategy by looking at churchill hitler stalin roosevelt and mussolini churchill has a fascinating and i preview the book here the most interesting period of churchill is the one period in his career that isn't studied that much when it comes to understanding Second World War strategy. And that was when he is Minister of Munitions in 1917-18. He has this first very tumultuous period in the, in the First World War. He has the Gallipoli disaster. He you know, carries the can for that. He then goes to the front and he sees what war is. And he comes back and because he's not in the war cabinet, people don't pay attention to him. But he's actually got a really important job. He is Minister of Munitions. And he has to think, OK, what do we need to win the First World War? And there are fabulous memos in the National Archives where he writes down, actually, it's all about movement power, not firepower. I mean, he actually is. He's, and he's, he's talking about, OK, wow. we, what we need to do is we need to protect our soldiers. You know, I, he's, he's against any kind of high casualties. He's saying we need machines. Machines are our Brilliant. way to win the war. And he actually, he calls it movement power over firepower. And it's no mistake that as soon as he becomes prime minister, You know, that's what. That, by the way, but Britain's also doing it in the thirties. Britain's investing massive sums in its air yeah. force and navy in the thirties. The army is always the poor yeah. relation at that point. And Churchill really. But there's a
2: the whole thing about the army. Yeah. You know, Britain's not going to have a large army yeah. because to have a large army, you have to have yeah. conscription, and, and and the public wouldn't pull up for it. And also, where do you put them? You know, if you've yeah. got an army of millions, where, where do they exactly. go when you're you're exactly. you're a country like Britain? And how do you move them about? You know, there's a reason why Britain, as an island nation, is, has, has the Royal Navy as its senior service.
4: Absolutely. And, and why the RAF actually passes the Royal Navy in funding in the late 30s. Yeah, they, when, when, when faced with the funding, Britain always funds air and sea. You know, the land becomes, I don't want to say secondary, but it's never going to be the main service. And so the British make that decision very early. The Americans make that decision, I would say, primarily in 1942 when Roosevelt's – there's a really interesting production crisis for the United States in 42. People think the Americans can build everything they want. They can't. They think they can build everything they want. But in the summer of 42, they find they can't. And they have a real hard brass tax fight in Washington. And Roosevelt says that's it, aircraft number one, Navy number two, Army gets the scraps and they fight the rest that's of the That's
2: really interesting, because I thought that I thought that decision from Roosevelt <laughs> had come a little bit earlier than that. I, I thought it's kind of like summer of 1940, where he goes, you know, the first thing he says is, we're going to be making 50,000 aircraft a year. You know, because because America starts the war with, I think, if,
3: it's
2: like 74 fighter planes, and that's it, and, and 50 heavy bombers. And, and then suddenly there's this exponential kind of explosion mm. in, in ambition for, for, for what, the armed forces are going to be and, and again although the the army is going to is, is massively increases in size you know uh, the usa in world war ii broadly sticks to that same steel not flesh policy doesn't it of using machinery
4: but that's to do a bit- lot of the
2: hard yards
4: in 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 january 42 when they announced the victory program they're talking about a 212 division army yeah, a, yeah. A, a absolutely massive land force um, that yeah. will, and that's the one. By the end of the year, they're talking about the basically hundred division army. They've cut the army in half. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. what they that's what they stick with. So they they almost run out of men. I mean, it's such a um, I'd say it's a it's a gamble. It's quite a gamble. And in nineteen late nineteen forty four, they do almost run out of men. That's why in the Battle of the Bulge, they basically have to scrape men off the you know hotels of Paris to get them into combat because the U S Army yeah. doesn't actually have that many personnel. Uh, but that's a conscious of choice made in 1942 and reinforced in 43. Air and sea will always win out, and they do.
1: Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear
3: Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This
4: episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot...
0: in your book about uh, uh, inevitably about japan and about about how this this campaign necessarily against japan has to be a a sea and air campaign principally because there's there's bugger all land involved and there's not much (laughs) land and you know the odd the odd the odd uh, plug of land across the pacific as you go but but uh, the the land battle is the one that has to be avoided. In fact, uh, it is where American strategy ends ends up. The land battle, though which it does end up, concrete, I mean, Japan, yeah, they so. do
4: end up doing things like invading the Philippines, and there's a real question about whether well, yeah, that's a lot of land.
0: And yeah, at one point, yeah.
4: early in the war, Marshall's talking about going to China. You know, they actually think that they're going to have to go to China and fight a big yeah. land war there, which would have been a disaster. I mean, you know, Japan. I think, you know, of course, Japan is going to be the air and sea war um, uh, non-parallel. It's a much harder war, I think, than people, and and again, looking at air and sea versus land. One of the things that got a lot of people, I think, angry about the book is I just actually looked at statistics and made a comparison between the Soviet Union and Japan in 1942-43. Everyone thinks, oh, Soviet Union, big, massive power, a lot of land, a lot of people. Uh, Japan, small island, can't do a lot. Well, actually, Japan and the Soviet Union, 1942, 1943, and actually early 44 before the submarines devastate the Japanese economy, they are producing about the same amount of stuff. It's just the Japanese are producing naval vessels and aircraft. The Soviet Union so does not have to the Soviet Union doesn't have to mm. build a single naval vessel and you wouldn't want to be in a Soviet naval vessel so what what is happening is that the, the, <laughs> the, the Japanese actually produce as much steel and coal and iron as the Soviet Union in 1942 43 and early 44 they even produce more aluminum they can produce, you know, they have a, they have in many ways this, an equivalent resource base as the Soviet Union they just have to throw it all into the air and sea battle. Um, and I think you know to look at it. You know, the Soviets produce more planes overall, though I'm quite skeptical of the Soviet figures because most of their aluminum comes from the United States through lend And even then, you know, Soviet aircraft—if they produce that much, they do so little with them. I mean, the German losses are so minuscule on the Eastern Front; it's hard to reconcile what what the yeah, Soviets only. are making. Yeah, you know, the, the the Japanese increase production rates faster than the Russians from 42 into early 44 when it comes to planes, so that by nineteen forty four they're producing I think twenty eight
0: thousand aircraft,
4: which is a which is a very large number.
0: This is with a Chinese resource base essentially, isn't it? That I'm really it's the there.
4: Chinese resource base and the Dutch East Indies really help. I mean they put together a very large resource rich empire in nineteen forty two. They had the they had mm. Japan China which they'd been expanding yep. into and then they take over the Philippines and primarily Indonesia today, the Dutch East Indies, Malaya with rubber. If you're looking at a, mm-hmm. a resource-rich empire, actually the Japanese might 42 again, are probably equivalent to the Soviet Union and the resources that they have access to. They don't have quite as much natural um, yeah. iron and, and steel. Soviets, I mean, the Manchurian steel, iron and steel is not quite of that quality. But for, the one thing they have is, I said, much more, say, aluminum. And aluminum is the most... I don't want to be, get too boring and wonky. Aluminum's the key metal of the Second World War, not steel,
2: because you can only
4: make aircraft out of <laughs> yeah. aluminum. Yeah. If you, I mean, and you can make the hurricane out of steel, yeah. but the hurricanes, you don't want to fly in the hurricane for too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You need you need no. aluminum. <laughs> Yeah, 1940's exactly. enough. You need aluminum to build the really high quality. Or the you, know, you can do the Mosquito, but that's an extraordinary aircraft of a different type. Almost all other aircraft are, are, are yeah. aluminum. Yeah. And if you don't have aluminum, you can't fight the Second World War. And the Soviets actually have almost no aluminum. Stalin, when he meets Harry Hopkins, and the, uh, when he meets Harry Hopkins and, and right after the German invasion, he begs him for aluminum.
2: I'll tell you what, you're right about those aircraft figures, because they just don't stack up, do they? They really don't. And if you if you think in in three months, um, I think no, it's four months in the summer of 1943, um, the Luftwaffe loses seven times the number of aircraft in the Mediterranean. Uh, than they do
4: it, on the it's, Front. it's absolutely. And it's that's absolutely, after Kursk.
2: That's sort of in including fact, an. From after what Kursk. we can
4: tell, in many ways, the Germans stop recording losses on the Eastern Front at different times because there's. So, I mean, Galland, um, Adolf Galland, is the the famous sort of director of fighters. Says we we just didn't yeah. really pay it much attention. So they're sending, they're, by the way, sending second-rate equipment to the east. Yeah, they're still sending Stukas in 1944, 45, to the yeah. east, Heinkel 111s, which fail yeah. in the Battle of Britain, they're sending to the east until 1945. So they're sending 2nd rate aircraft, and I don't want to be too harsh, but really second-rate pilots. If you're a good pilot, you're actually gonna be sent to fight the British and the Americans because that's the crucial ones. So you have all these great, go look at the great German aces. Mm. They're all ones who fight on the Eastern Front shooting down Soviets. Whenever they get transferred yeah. to the West.
0: Yeah, you're getting a hundred. Well, I mean, we, we've talked about my um, on the land, we've talked about Mike, Michael Wittmann is a name that came up early in the podcast, of course, the famous, the famous Panzer ace um, from the Eastern Front, who, who, who then in Normandy um, yeah. uh, meets his end and you think well is there a is there a again a quality a quality thing here too in terms of training and and all that sort of stuff because he's got a it, it, you know if you've got the if you've got the good kit on the eastern front you can have quite a Absolutely. marked effect can't you given the way the given the way the given the way the russians are operating tactically i mean it's the thing we've talked again you know because because after all as your book points out when you look at the people look at the um loss loss in terms of infantry for instance on the eastern front you go well that's obviously the bigger campaign that's the in terms of human loss but but one of the things we have talked about is how how basically profligate the soviets are with their own people and and careless possibly you know and and you're running it and and that james should point out that the aircraft figures don't really make any sense well after all we're dealing with a we're dealing with a, a, a culture that has some it, it, an interesting relationship with information and how it's passed on and what it's for and that sort of thing and that, so so soviet production figures exist in a propaganda sphere as much as they do in an actual Well, they certainly don't make any sense sphere, when you
4: look at german losses i mean that's the hard thing for me to reckon i mean maybe they build them but yeah. half of them that's another thing maybe yeah. half of them can't fly because they're poorly made
0: well, there was a scandal after the war, wasn't there, with um, about about um, yeah. Soviet aircraft safety that that, that embroiled Russian politics for, for at least a year or so, and you know another little purge because because the the, <laughs> the planes hadn't been safe and had had a high accident rate. So, I mean, they, these are all part of the same story, I expect. But but yeah. sorry, we, but to go back to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the, 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 the American, the American uh, submarine campaign against Japan, against Japan it really is a, by 90, the end of 1944 is a complete stranglehold isn't it no, nothing is getting yeah in or very out very Japan little
2: that yeah
0: it's amazing that and it's so little known,
2: isn't it? Why is that? Well,
4: I think, I mean, in Europe, on the whole, the war on the Pacific, and, and I'm, I will not name names, but if you look at major European historians who write histories of the Second World War, they look at Japan and the war on the Pacific as a sideshow. Go go look at the, the sort of major <laughs> overworld narratives and see what percentage of them are devoted to the Pacific and what percentage are devoted to Europe, and it's usually four to one, five to one towards Europe. Because the assumption is Japan... It, it's very much the Germany first mentality... Has sunk into the way the story is told yeah. here, uh, and and so that's one. The second is, of course. It doesn't involve this. Is, it's why it's a classic. It doesn't involve a lot of people, the battle. It involves equipment and it's a devastating equipment battle. Yeah. But you're talking it involves a few thousand American submariners. Yeah. Uh, for a few thousand yeah. men, you are crippling the Japanese economy.
2: So that's a very efficient way of fighting a war, isn't it? Because the, you, you want as few men as possible at the coal face to cause the maximum amount of damage. I mean, you know. You know that, that's the whole point of the atomic bomb
4: uh, and the, Germ- the most efficient campaign the Germans can fight is the battle of the Atlantic and when they lose that battle the war's over in fact it's the only efficient it's the only efficient right. campaign the Germans are fighting in the war where I mean the losses are high as a percentage
2: and, and it's not no. that efficient because they just don't have enough and at they, the start yeah, of the war I mean you, you know I think it's it's no more than is it 13 or 14 U-boats in the Atlantic at any one time on operations in 1940, and that figure's sunk to six by January 1941, which is absolutely the crucial time. I mean, the happy time in inverted commas of of the late late summer and early autumn of mm-hmm. of 1940, where they're kind of making hay. Boy, they really should have been making hay, and they're just not making enough hay. It's the truth of the matter. I mean, they, I think only once did they get over 500,000. Um, tons a month which which sounds like a hideous amount but it's but when you've got 10,000 merchant vessels and you've got access to around 80% of the world's merchant fleet that is just no yeah. way near enough you know why on earth don't they build don't they scrap the z plan and and build 250 U-boats in the 1930s while they got... The it, I the mean, the,
4: the general view of, of view of some is Admiral Rader, who was an old battleship admiral, not a submariner, and he gets Hitler to look at... The, Hitler, who has a very conventional view of the air-sea war, of the sea, particularly the sea war going into the Second World War, is very much trying to fight the First World War, or almost pre-First World War, German battleship navy. That's Plan Z. We'll take the British on, win the great battle, and that's it. But they never have a hope in hell of
2: doing that. I mean, just, just never. It's insane. Yeah, but you try telling It's absolutely insane. It's also, try also telling big Hitler dick that. syndrome, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, where, where's the fun in smashing a champagne bottle against the hull of a, of a U-boat when you could be doing it against the Tirpitz? You know, I mean, you know, Hitler likes big shit, doesn't he? I mean... He just the bigger the better, as far as he's concerned. Cause it, it, well, that's one, it,
4: it's why they never... I mean, the real, the real crucial thing is not only they slow U-boat production in 39, 40, 41, is they don't try to make an upgrade in um, the overall U-boat design till 43.
2: Type 21 one's just sitting there. The technology is there in 1939 for the Type 21. They just don't apply it. It's the it's it's one potential game changer that they so have. So the British technology,
4: basically, from 39 to 43, increases extraordinarily... You know, when things like the way the, the efficient radar, mm-hmm. the way the ships they're designing and the Germans are basically plotting along with the type sevens and the type nines and
0: then they just get massacred in 43.
2: God, look how seamlessly we yeah. return to the West.
0: Yeah, look, yeah. I'm trying to keep things on Japan, but it's impossible. Yeah, Back to the Pacific. To the Pacific. <laughs> but, that, that, <laughs> the,
4: but yes, that submarine campaign needs to be understood because the Japanese economy basically goes into precipitous decline in the second half of 44.
2: I've, I've got a statistic somewhere, Phil, where it says something like I think I think it was something like eighty-seven percent of GDP in Japan is spent on defence by nineteen
4: forty-four. I mean, that's just I, I, insane. I would think. It, I mean, Japan is the most fully mobilised society, probably even more than the Soviet Union when you when you look at the amount put into the war effort it certainly is equivalent if not they 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 just are throwing everything into the war effort but they they can't compete it's nothing particularly once their supply lines are cut
0: yeah, so so in a, in a way you end up you end up with germany and japan in a similar yeah. state by the end of 44 where where their economies are in a pre- precipitous decline there's no way they can no. there's no way i mean James thinks there's no way the Germans can win in 41 43 is the the year I always say middle of 43 it's obviously game over and if you're and if you're doing Klaus Witzian decisive battles or moments where you know that there's no way out you 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 that's the point where you 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 surrender or you at least sue for peace why are what on earth is going on in because we talked an awful again we've talked an awful lot about Germany and about how the Germans get locked into this gutter demurring thing, and that you, you you know that it's it's the end of the world, it's it's death or glory, and so we're going to opt for death. What's going on in Japan? How how well, the think same the, thing? The Japanese there? on the one hand,
4: the death and glory one is is not uh, dissimilar to Japanese ways of war at this time. The Japanese army and navy have gotten Japan in the war, and they can't admit it's a failure. I mean, it's very much a bureaucratic situation, And yep. by the way, the emperor got them in the war too. The greatest cover-up of the Second World War is the cover-up of the Emperor after the Second World War. Um, and it's wonderful. If you, if you read the Japanese descriptions, uh, the interviews after the war, I can tell you everyone in the Navy said, oh, we didn't want war, the Army wanted war. And everyone in the Army said, oh, we didn't want war, the Navy wanted war. You know, but they also, oh, and the Emperor didn't want war either. Everyone, it's almost like they're reading French. But they all wanted war, they had gotten in. And not only that, even more than, much more than the Germans, um, uh, than anyone else, they lied to their population about how the war was going. So they had been telling the Japanese population up until 1943, this war is going great. We are just absolutely cruising. And they, 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 they then can't turn back on themselves. Uh, and you know, it is it, – one doesn't want to say it's too much a bureaucracy making a choice, but no one has the, the ability to change the direction of, of the war, you know, to stand up in Japan and say this is over. The civilians are terrified they'll be killed. Um, the army and navy don't want to admit they lost, and it's better to wait. Let's see what happens. We'll come up with a strategy, it really won't work, but we'll at least write it down on paper and make it look good. And the strategy is we'll get better terms if we bleed the Americans. So they they, do, I think people in the know, understand the war's lost 43, if you're in Japan. They won't voice it, but what they're trying to do is make the war as bloody and horrible as possible and to get the best possible terms from the United States. They also, I think, um, think the Germans might beat the Soviet Union I, it's really, you know, 40, it, it, that's why 40 for the Japanese, what happened, you know, they really go into the war thinking that, that um, Germany is about to knock the Soviet Union out. And when that doesn't happen, the entire yep. Japanese strategy is really buggered.
0: Right, that's all we've got time for with Philips right now. Uh, the rest of this conversation will be on on Thursday. Thanks very much.